Okay. So, here's an episode about the paw race. Oh. Um, yeah, this is a good time to admit that I was wrong. <sighs> it's not, you know, something I'm particularly fond of doing. But I did actually screw up factoids uh, I, several times in recent memory, especially when it came to the episode Waltz. I mentioned how the paw race hadn't even been invented yet, because I was thinking this was the episode when the paw race were brought in. Uh, I was incredibly wrong. They were invented for the Season 5, Episode 5 uh, episode, where Keiko is possessed by a paw race. You remember that one? That's actually when the paw race were added to the show. I'll be completely honest, I forgot about that. Like, entirely. I was doing some behind-the-scenes research for this episode, and I was trying to find the reference to the Paw Wraiths, because they were actually brought up in, like, a casual reference all the way back in, like, Season 3. Just as a, you know, the the fire caves of the Paw Wraiths or something like that. And then I noticed the reference to the Keiko episode, and I was like, ah, crap. So, my bad. Screwed that up. I apologize. However, this is, at least I remember this part correctly, this is when the paw rates actually start to enter the plot. Late Season 6 is when the paw rates finally actually enter the story. Because they're going to be a recurring element of, I think, like five more episodes? I, I guess four more episodes, excuse me, five counting this one. What's funny is originally they were going to have this big, you know, blah, superhero X-Men Marvel Cinematic Universe style, not that it existed at the time, uh, super battle between the Paw Wraith and the Prophet. And they're like, yeah, so they figured it out. They hashed out some of the details and how long it would take. And they figured it would be about a 15-day shoot. Some of you may remember that I've been pointing out, bit by bit, as I go through these shows, the nature of television production. On average, a show takes anywhere from four to six days to make. Now... I'm saying that wrong. They get about four to six days of shoot time. That's part of the scheduling. Every additional day is a substantial increased expense to the episode. Because they're basically, to put it simply, the budgeting does it in terms of days actually worked. So that's one of the reasons why it's easier to do something like a two-parter. Because even though they're stretching out the days, like if you do, if it takes you five days, that's a bad example. If it takes you like seven days to do a two-parter, then that's still less than the 12 days it would take you to do two separate parters. Like, if you follow the logic. Anyway, so they were looking at this and thinking that it was going to be a 15-day shoot, which I'm not sure there's ever been a Star Trek episode that high on the list, as far as how long it took. I'd have to look into that. Meanwhile, speaking of the paw rates, you know, entering the story and actually becoming part of the story, Kai Wynn is back, and she's a bad guy again. Yay! Why is she a bad guy again? I decided to look into this because I thought it was rather jarring. I found a quote by Renee Echeverria who said, uh, yeah, we didn't come up with an excuse. We, we just wanted her to be a villain again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like season six and season seven, but man, they were really flying by the seat of their pants, weren't they? What's actually funny is I've actually realized something as I've been going through this. I really like Season 6 so far, except when it concerns the main plot of, you know, evil and good and parades and prophets and Dukat and Cisco. Every other thing about the Dominion War and the character stuff has been basically good, with the sole exception of the Yoda-Kira relationship, which I can at least stomach. 
<laughs> but it just feels like they're like, okay, shove, and then all of a sudden there's a spiritual battle between good and evil in Star Trek. Anyways, this episode references the hell out of previous episodes. The whole recurring thing. Oh yeah, it's all over the place. I was actually keeping track for a bit. You know, Kiranoda's relationship, uh, Betazoid, they're trying to make uh, stuff through Betazoid because they've already conquered it. Um, there's the Rapture references, of which there are more than one. The fact that he's of Bajor, the fact that he's comfortable as the Emissary, the fact that he owes them something for uh, Sacrifice of Angels, and the fact that the Dominion is officially, this is the actual confirmation, the Dominion is officially leaving the Wormhole alone because they're afraid of the aliens. Okay. And I stopped keeping track. There are so many references in this episode. It's one of the most recurring episodes in the season so far, which is good. Um, oh yeah, the ruins, Belhalla or whatever, which they've actually referenced uh, I think once before. Now, don't don't quote me on that. I keep getting facts wrong today, so just ignore me. <sighs> There's this little bit. <laughs> I just so you remember what I just said about how you know the the spiritual story is the one that's kind of losing me. There's this bit where Kira says to Jake, look, it's good for him to not think about the Dominion for a few hours. And I swear, the moment she said that, I, I thought she was talking to me in person, just for a moment, because I was kind of zoned out a little bit, and I, I was actually in the middle of writing another unrelated note, and I'm like, mm. And she says, it's good to not think about the Dominion for a few hours. And I'm like, no, it's not. And I Right, she's talking about Cisco. I don't want to not think about the Dominion. They're the main story, or at least I think they should be. They're not. So then Kai Wen re-enters the episode, and she's right back to being, Hi, I'm the ultra-evil one. Uh, hello, ultra-evil Wen. I'd say it's good to see you, but that would be a complete lie. I was kind of down with the idea that they were trying to gray her character a little bit and drift her into a slightly more complex position. Uh, no, she's back to being the villain. I've said it before and I've said it again. She is in the running for the most evil character on this show. And the fact that she's up against the female changeling for that is frickin' terrifying. <sighs> she actually directly compares Cisco to the Cardassian occupation. Now, if you don't understand the point there, uh, oh gosh, I'm not actually good at terminology when it comes to uh, false arguments and debate techniques. But there's a concept where you effectively try to distend a parallel as a way to try and draw your attention to the negative aspects that are similar within two effectively unrelated points. Now that sounds like a vague sentence, and I apologize. Like I said, I don't know the terminology. But let me just say what the actual episode states. Cisco, the emissary, has requested, has been invited to look at this artifact and then requests to take it up to his sh shop up on DS9, so he can look at it in detail. He is then compared in this action to the Cardassian occupation, where they actively stole and destroyed artifacts by shipping them off to Bajor to go in museums, or, or uh, in wherever they end up setting them, selling them or putting them in museums, whatever. That's, uh, that's kind of like, there's, there's nothing connecting there, is my point. Hence, false argument. And Kai Wen is just falling right back into that habit. She does that all the time in this episode. She also admits the prophets have never spoken to her. Do me a favor and remember that. It'll be coming up later. Now, <clears throat> she also lodges a formal protest with the Federation. Cute. 
so I actually have surprisingly few notes on this episode. Dax brings up an interesting point at a certain element, though. Cisco says they care about what happens to Bajor, and Dax says uh, you had to convince them to save Bajor. That's an interesting point. While Cisco successfully convinced them, he still had to do it. That's not what I would call benevolence. That's more like neutral, maybe leaning towards benevolence. Which actually makes sense, because if I was to use the alignment chart, I'd say the prophets lean more towards lawful neutral than anything else. So, I guess that's one thing they have in, in, in similarity with the changelings. <clears throat> in common, in common with the changelings. There's this nice bit where we see Odo, Bashir, Worf, and Quark. And all of them are basically giving their opinions on, uh, let's call it what it is, the spiritual plot. I'm, I'm just going to start calling it that. Now, this is actually a nice little tidbit, because this is effectively when the spiritual plot is actually starting. There's been hints, there's been tidbits, but this is where they're actually implementing it into the show. So it makes sense that they would bother to have multiple characters in character debating the spiritual plot in character to kind of give a differing perspective on the matter. Now, that being said, this is probably not the best group to do it in, because we have Odo. A non-believer of faith... Hang on, let me say this more correctly. A non-blind faith, but a specific faith believer. I'll talk more about that in a moment. We have Bashir, who is neither blind nor specific faith. We have Worth, who is both blind faith and specific faith. And we have Cork, who doesn't give a damn. Now, <laughs> this is an interesting way, because it almost covers the gamut. It almost covers every perspective on this particular axis. What's interesting, though, is that the episode then has Bashir, at the end, the, the most staunch non-believer, say, oh my gosh, what did that prophecy say again? Right at the end, as the station starts getting hit by whatever gravimetric distortions the wormhole's tossing out. So... I feel like, this is just my opinion, but I feel like there's a little bit of creative trickery going on here to try and convince the audience that, yeah, no, this is the spiritual story. It's really happening. This isn't like some trick or some wormhole alien. You know, this is not a, a hologram. You're not going to see what's-her-face from TNG pretending to be the devil. No, this is actually real. And I could see why they'd want to do that. After all, this is Star Trek. I mean, how many fake gods have we encountered on this show? Just this show, never mind all of Star Trek. Anyways, so there's this nice bit where they see the wormhole opening and closing periodically. Now, I know the tint of the episode is this is all about, you know, the prophets and Bajor and all that fun stuff. And we know that something from the wormhole is setting out some kind of disturbance, wave, force, whatever it is, which is causing issues on Bajor. But... What's really strange about that to me is the last time we saw the wormhole opening and closing like this, everyone suspected ships were going through it cloaked. No one even brings up the possibility this time. I think that's a little bit of sleight of hand trickery on the writer's point again, because if they did, the audience might be tempted to think, oh, maybe it's not the spiritual plot. No, it's the spiritual plot. I am wondering, though, what is sending off those earthquake waves? They never actually explain it. They never even say what it is. Just the wormholes opening and closing, stuff's happening back on Bajor, and the station's shaking every now and again. What's going on exactly? They never explain that. Now, <clears throat> Odo... 
Odo is eating with Kira, and it's actually a nice scene. Um, it's a friendly scene, but it still works very well. Because what we see here is the argument and debate of the finer points between blind faith and specific faith. Told you I'd get back to that point. Blind faith is what Kira has. Now, I don't even need to really make this point, but I think the best possible way of making this point is wrongs darker than death and night. She believed, blindly, that anything she did was totally cool, that she didn't have to be restrained or careful or cautious or anything, that she could just do whatever came to mind, because whatever it is, it's what the prophets want. Blind faith. Do note, I'm not saying blind faith is necessarily a bad thing, by the way. Don't try to shove words down my mouth. I'm just discussing the differences between the two because it's very relevant to this episode, because what Odo has is specific faith. Specific faith is easy to explain, since most people don't even think of it as that. Let's say you have a very close friend or family member, and they've been there for you through all of the crap. Everything you've been through. They have been there for you. They've never turned you down. They've never broken your heart or destroyed your, broken your back or broken your wallet. No. You have faith in them, specifically. Now, <laughs> I'm probably using incorrect terminology because it's me, but you can already immediately see the difference between these two types of faith. The former is... Uh, how do I phrase this? The former is backloaded, and the latter is frontloaded. Blind faith is when you walk in thinking this will work out, and there's nothing supporting that conclusion. So, then you do stuff, and assuming the faith was actually valid and is fulfilled, as happens in this episode, then after the fact, it is the faith is now justified. Specific faith has to be justified before it is given. It's more of a transaction kind of a thing. I have faith in you, or in this concept, or in this ideal, or in this organization, because dot dot dot. Make sense? This is then an interesting contrast in ideology between Kira and Odo, and probably one of the ways their characters do bounce off each other very well. Because she has a lot of blind faith, and he has a lot of specific faith. Granted, she has specific faith too, in fact, most people do. But you can see how their overall ideologies lean in the different directions. And despite that, they both respect and tolerate each other's perspectives on the matter, as the episode makes a point of showcasing how Odo, despite everything, despite having no faith in the prophets, has faith in Kira, and respects her blind faith, effect effectively being vetted in. Nice touch. Now, meanwhile, speaking of a total lack of faith, let's talk about Kai Wen who starts playing hardball. She actually brings in the ministry, the prime minister being like, look, <laughs> I'm going to actually have them lodge a formal protest, and we're going to actually start damaging relations between Bajor and the Federation if you don't give me this frickin' thing back. They never say how she managed to get Shikar to agree with this. As I think I've hinted at before, he's gone. He's never showing up on the show again. Um, so we don't actually even have a hint of how she managed this. What we do know is that Cisco goes down and he says, well, actually, no, I'm sorry. Before we get to that, there's actually two other scenes. Sorry, sorry. The first is Kira's perspective on Cisco. Kira mentions how 
I forget the distinction between jealousy and envy, but she envies or is jealous of, I forget which is which, Cisco's position as the emissary. But she doesn't begrudge him that. It would be easy for her to do so because of how much of a faith-based person she is. But she doesn't, and she flat-out states one of the biggest reasons is because he didn't ask for this. This is not something that he sought out. This is something that he has accepted. Which means, blind faith, that he was the one who should have this burden. This, of course, then leads to an interesting scene between Sisko and Jake. Jake talks about how multiple times now he's had to go he's been called down to the med bay to 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 the medical area and been told hey so your dad's having something going on with the prophets again and he does a really really Sirik Lofton I, I don't praise his acting as much as I'd like to uh, mostly because he's kind of a guest star on so much of the show don't worry we'll be getting a good Sirik Lofton episode later um but he's just he sells the idea of how horrible that feels Something that he doesn't believe in, that he doesn't care about, that he's just, he's kind of ancillary to or external for, and it's causing his father to be in terrible danger. In a funny little way, it's actually a nice allegory for Starfleet, or military service in general, for the fact that Sisko is the kind of person who is regularly called into very dangerous and terrifying circumstances. And there's nothing Jake can do about that. The difference is Jake believes in, if you could call it that, Starfleet and the ideals of the Federation and what they do. He has no belief in the Prophets or Bajor. That's just kind of, okay, sure. Then Sisko goes to the tablet. He's just, he's pissed. Note the sequence of events here. He has been told he has to relinquish the tablet. But if the tablet is not released in the gateway soon, then it won't happen. The, the, the reckoning won't happen. So something has to happen tonight to release the, ent the entities from the tablet. So he is awoken in the middle of the night, being unable to sleep properly, and out of frustration goes and rants at it. And he has this wonderful line, Why do you got to be so damned mysterious all the time? If there's something you need me to do, just say so. And what he hears is silence. But what he feels is an overwhelming urge to destroy the tablet. So he does, and that's what he was supposed to do. It is an interesting fact that the prophets, for all their vagueness, actually aren't that vague. There are plenty of fictional deities and would-be deities that are a lot more vague and a lot less precise in how they try to guide events than the prophets are. So they're free! Woo! And Kai Wen's like, dude, where's my tablet, dude? Sisko's like, dude? She's like, where's my tablet, dude? Then we get to the part of the episode, and i, I got to share a story with you guys. So, as you are aware, all of Star Trek up to season one of Enterprise, I watched side by side with my mom. Now, by this point in real life history, it had gotten to the point where we were mostly recording it on the VHS until we'd both have time to watch it because I was, at this point in time, I was working at a job um, in addition to schooling and she was, you know, working, obviously. So we would record it and then we'd set aside our own time later in the evening to watch. I think I've actually referenced that before. Like I said, we had the uh, advantage of having a VCR, a good VCR too, because it had the timing thing. You could set it to record from set time to set time. So we'd do that. 
by what is effectively coincidence, uh, I forget what we were doing exactly, but we turned on the TV to check something, and we saw the energy beam battle between Kira and Jake, or rather, between the Prophet and Costamojo. Um, <laughs> and I remember, I'll never forget what that felt like, because I was just like, Huh? That was pretty much exactly my reaction. Knowing nothing. Knowing nothing about the episode. That was the first thing I saw was... And I'm like... I turned to Mom, and she's just like... She just gives me this shrug like... Ugh. And then we just went back to what we were doing. <laughs> that has stuck in my memory so long. I Actually, I thought it happened a lot earlier in the show than this. Uh, anyways, so then the energy battle happens. You know, the, the really weird... I want you to picture... What it's like being an actor. It's like, okay, you're standing there, and, and the director's telling you, okay, you're powering, you're putting all your energy into the other person. And so, you know, Nana Visitor's there, Sir Lofton's there, Heroes. You know. By all accounts, they were having trouble getting longer takes because they kept bursting out laughing. Because think about that. You're just standing at a set going... <laughs> think about it. Ah. <sighs> There's this bit, actually, before I move forward, how many times did they evacuate this stupid station on the show? Anyways, <clears throat> Kai offers herself to the Prophet. The Prophet ignores her completely. Remember that. It's going to be important later. So, <laughs> Kai Wen mentions the idea of if, if this new age starts, there'll be no need for Vedics or Kais or emissaries. We'll just, it'll, everything will be great. It'll be paradise. <laughs> so she interrupts. She stops the fight. And I was paying attention this time around. Good was winning. The prophets were winning. The Pawraith, or Pawraiths, they never actually clarify this point, by the way, were losing. So... This would have been the end of the Paw Race and the end of that particular plot. Kai Wynn gets in the way and stops it. I'll never forget Mum while we were watching this. She was just like, oh, you idiot, is what she said. Because she was just, you can't, you were, do you know what you just did? Why do you think she did it? I mean, yeah, because she's horribly evil. But what I mean by that is what was her motive exactly? Was it envy? or jealousy of the emissary, because she couldn't stand the thought that he had more faith than her? Was it because she couldn't stand the thought of losing her political power of her religious position? Was it because she couldn't stand the prophets in general because how they have always shunned her? There's actually a lot of interesting possibilities here, and as ever, love to hear your thoughts on this one. Regardless, this time... Cisco goes down to meet Jake in the infirmary. Interesting little tidbit. Jake says, I knew the hatred and the violence of Costamoja had to be destroyed, even if it meant the loss of my life. For the first time, Jake is no longer an outsider to this. He is now inside. He now understands. To him, this is no longer some mere distant, weird spiritual thing. This is a legitimate conflict between two energy beings, one of which is definitively malicious and Jake being a, a you know a decent inc inclined person 
wanted to end that even at the cost of his own life and made that choice without hesitation, just like Sisko made the same choice. I wonder if Jake would have actually died. Food for thought. It's also possible the station would have been destroyed. More food for thought. Either way, we'll never know, because Kai Wen decided to get involved. Once again, the actions of one person. Interesting. So, <clears throat> the episode ends with Kira basically being like, look, this isn't over. I, at first, I thought that was kind of weird, but in hindsight, it makes perfect sense. Because this is the beginning of the spiritual plot, not the end of it. This is not a threat of the weak, and that's the whole point of Kira's final denouement to Kai Win. This is not the end. There's still evil out there. The Paraith or Paraiths still exist, and this still needs to be something that's dealt with going forward. I also love Kai Win's little comment. The emissary couldn't couldn't escort me himself. God, I just want to smack her sometimes. So that's it. That's the episode. <laughs> I'm going to talk more about the Kai Win thing in a much later episode, uh, in the final nine-parter at the end of Season 7, to be more specific. So do me a favor and remember that, because that's going to be coming up next year, actually, in, in the beginning of 2021, is when we will finally finish off D-Space 9. I've already mathed it out. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on the beginning of the spiritual plot. I'll see you next time, guys.